time I'm playing that, I said, why not play it at the start of each one? Um, as I said, it's a little thing I wrote in December one evening. And um, I don't know if you can get a sense from it, but the bending of the strings at the start is like, <laughs> it's like a warping from like stress. Um, and then after that little section, the chord progression just goes down and down and down. And it's, and it's like, can it get any worse? Can it get any lower? And it keeps on going down. And then when it comes back up, it's just back up to more <laughs> stress and bending and warping. So yeah, um, this is early January 2024. So have a guess what uh, influenced that. All right. So... Um, I'm just going to get straight back into this because, um, yeah, that's it. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to the other two sections, it's probably best to check them out first to um, build up to where we are here now. So this, I probably ended just um, the last line of the last section that I read out read from is um, dialogical art practices are closer to Marcuse's argument that art should be orchestrated towards raising awareness of the need for liberation regardless of class. This method opposes Bourriot's relational aesthetics and ornamental effort. Yeah, I really am curious to look into relational aesthetics again. I have the book, I have that book I have two of his books, actually, Nicholas Borio. But the book um, called Relational Aesthetics is one of those books that I have lost since I moved um, to Belgium. Um, it's back home somewhere, but it's seemingly lost there. I couldn't take all the books when I moved the first time. I went back over, uh, when was it, last year? No, mm, yeah, I went, went over once to try and find the things, the books, but <laughs> I could only find a certain amount. Things get moved around and lost. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm just saying this because I'd love to look into these relational aesthetics again. Uh, and I probably will online after this uh, episode as a result of doing this episode. Um, but anyway, so this section of the thesis now is all about a different kind of... Um, artwork and it's called dialogical art and this is the dialogical art that's referred to in the title of this thesis um so yeah i'll just get straight into it so this is section 3.2 called dialogical praxis as post-structuralist theories were assimilated by installation artists in an attempt to decenter individual perspectives here, other theories which are used as praxis in contemporary socially engaged art are discussed. Oh, actually, I think I read this in the end of the last uh, episode. The Open Work by Umberto Eco, The Death of the Author by Roland Barth, and The Author as Producer by Walter Benjamin all deal with the nature of subjectivity. These works contribute to raising an awareness of the fallibility, meaning likelihood to be wrong, of an author's work to be interpreted as she or he intended. This is so because individuals viewing work or reading texts all project their own individual interpretations onto the world according to their memory 
or experience. And actually, now that I'm reading this, I'm just thinking an absolute um, a work of art that deals with exactly this. Um, that, let's say the death of the author or the author as producer or the open work, these kind of ideas. Um, a work that was made, um, yeah, before those two articles anyway, the death of the author and maybe, I'm not sure about Walter Benjamin, but anyway, certainly before Umberto Eco, I'm pretty sure, um, is James Joyce's um, Finnegan's Wake. Because what like if I read that, if I read one page of that, let's say to myself um, or even out loud. And then if I get someone else to read the exact same page after or before me, we will both have probably extremely different interpretations of, um, of what was just read. And that was something that Joyce was definitely uh, conscious of. Um, what a person brings to a text or a work of art is going to affect how they can understand or interpret that work of art um, to a large extent. Um, so, yeah, if you're ever in a bookshop or if, if you have it, if you're ever in a bookshop, I totally recommend <laughs> go to um, try find James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, um, open it up anywhere and look at what is on the page. And you may be baffled because it doesn't even look like English which is because it almost is not because he it's like in in Ulysses he was trying to represent a waking day a day and the train of thoughts that a person might have during the day and then in Finnegan's Wake it's kind of like what happens during the night it seem it's seemingly like the dream consciousness of a person where everything is kind of mixed up um, it's just a phenomenal book. It's unbelievable. But anyway, so if you look at it, you're going to see that there's puns in something like 16 different languages on each page. Um, it's just unbelievable. Um, it's actually the book that I've read least of uh, by Joyce, but it's all ahead of me. That book, it took him something like 17 years to write. So... Yeah. Um, anyway, just that was just a little side note because it's exactly it's a great example of what was what I just read here from my own thesis. Um, this is so because individuals viewing works, work or reading texts all project their own individual interpretations onto the world according to their memory of experience. It is relevant to note here that Russian literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin argued that the work of art can be viewed as a kind of conversation, a locus of differing meanings, interpretations and points of view. Yeah, so like a work of art is a kind of a conversation starter because um, all people will experience it in different ways and have different things to say about it. Works of art can thus be instigators of conversations between viewers about the ideas which a work may seem to represent. Bakhtin himself expanded a theory dealing with notions of subjectivity, which argued that the self is unfinalizable. I like that word. He states our interactions with others shape us and so we are constantly in a state of flux. Yeah, and this is quite similar to the post-structuralist theories about no man is an island kind of thing. We're all interdependent on each other as opposed to to the Renaissance. And I'm pretty sure it was a, a Buddha. I'm pretty sure it was the Buddha who said, be unto yourself an island. So, hmm. 
Yeah, something to think about. He states, our interactions with others shape us and so we are constantly in a state of flux. This theory is particularly relevant to works described in this chapter. Another theory he expanded is polyphony. Polyphony. Sounds like um, poly is like multiple and phony is kind of like like phonics, like sounds. This concept, do I have a footnote about that? I didn't read out. Sometimes there's extra information down in the footnotes that I haven't read out as, a, as opposed to just where the source came from, where the reference came from. This concept holds that truth needs a multitude of carrying voices. Mm-hmm. Consensus. It cannot be held in a single mind and it cannot be expressed by a single mouth. Here, dialogue is shown to be the factor through consensus, which ultimately defines our sense of self in society. These concepts are crucial to the type of art discussed in this chapter. Grant Kester, as previously mentioned in chapter two, is a proponent, meaning like a supporter, um, is a support is a proponent of dialogical art he argues for the necessity of a paradigm shift a paradigm shift in our understanding of what a work of art can be a paradigm shift is like a paradigm is like the kind of set of ideas in in a in a particular area like a scientific paradigm can is it's the current understanding and then some new discovery is made and that changes the paradigm um, it's a funny word, paradigm. It looks like, but it's paradigm. Um, he argues for the he argues for the necessity of a paradigm shift in our understanding of what a work of art can be to facilitate dialogical practices, which are informed by the theories mentioned above. Key to understanding the passage to dialogical art practices is the problem of how one deals with notions of the self which society uses. The first notion is individualism, which, quote, holds that it is much better for a man to live on a deserted island than to live in a society where he is nothing more than a pawn ready to be sacrificed to the altar of public good. Where is that from? Again, that's an Ayn Rand quote. The second is collectivism, which is the opposing notion of the self and more open and altruistic. Dialogical art consists of projects set up by artists where the process involved consists of an ongoing dialogue between all the participants so that new understandings are established about society. By the participants, through open dialogue... The basis of Kester's argument for how the aesthetics of such works could be comprehended and appreciated can be summed up in his words. So as I was saying in the last chapter about relational aesthetics, if they lose the aesthetic dimension, what is the criteria that makes them actual works of art? Uh, so this, this is what this next quote is about, I think. This is Grant Kester, quote, In a sense, the work forms a lens that creates a focal point in the energies of transformation. Desire focused is passion. And what is socialized passion but aesthetics? So if you focus a kind of a, the influences within the, uh, within the artwork, work of art let me see in a sense the work forms a lens that creates a focal point in the energies of transformation 
desire focused is passion and what is socialized passion but aesthetics okay i'll just read on the effects and consequences of the interactions between the members of the public the effects and consequences of the interactions between the members of the public who become the participants are the factors which constitute the merits or aesthetics of such artworks. The aesthetics of object-based art, however, are not altogether abandoned in favour of this ex experimental approach. Aesthetic devices are utilised during collaborative projects to communicate the effects such works have had. To a, to a wider audience, once the initial dialogue process has been carried out, let me just read that again. Maybe my head is a bit elsewhere at the moment right now. <laughs> Aesthetic devices are utilized during collaborative projects to communicate the effects such works have had to a wider audience. Oh, yeah. Aesthetic devices are utilized during collaborative projects to communicate the effects such works have had to a wider audience once the initial dialogue process has been carried out. For example, a dialogical artwork which took place between Peter Dunn and his partner Lorraine Leeson. I think I said lesson last time. Oops. Leeson. So children from a school near Lond London's Docklands and the Tate Brit Britain. So these were the participants, children from a school near uh, London's Docklands and the, the, the museum Tate Britain. See uh, image number two. The participants recreated a painting of Cookham, which is a, a neighbourhood around there, produced some years earlier by Stanley Spencer. But in the group's interpretation of the painting, the children integrated themselves into the final digitally manipulated photograph to portray the culturally diverse society Cookham had become since the original painting was created. So, as you can see, he said, um, aesthetic devices are utilized during collaborative projects to communicate the effects of the effects such works have had. Where did I say? Oh, yeah, the aesthetics of object-based art, however, are not altogether abandoned in favor of this new dialogical art. In actual fact, it's a real intrinsic part of these dialogical, these, the more um, ob object-based art is, can be an intrinsic part of these dialogical uh, art practices. Because here, what the, what the group did, the artists got the, the, the school children to look at a painting of that represented their area um, that was made maybe a generation before them or something. And then they all spoke about it. They all spoke about it with the artists to kind of come to a better understanding about maybe the kind of cultural diversity that has come about in that area. And through that dialogue, they all probably learned quite a lot. And then as a way of kind of uh, summarizing what they've learned, they probably... Um, they, I'm not sure if the, if they drew a picture of themselves or they kind of they kind of um, contributed um, new visual, let's say, symbols um, in a in a kind of an edited version of this in a remake of this uh, painting um, to update it to the current uh, cultural kind of situation. So that's pretty cool. So um the dialogical aspect was the, the discussion that they all had to come to a new understanding and then object-based art was used again to kind of be the final um presentation to um 
other people who were not involved in the actual artwork. But when they can see the finished artwork, let's say, I mean, the finished artwork, the, the, the result uh, of the, the material result um, of, of, that ex- of that project is the new remade uh, picture that uh, you could probably see in a gallery somewhere. Um, I'll just go on. I'll probably talk about it more here. Um, the work also reignited a sense of, is that the right line? Since the original painting was created. Yes. The work also reignited a sense of Englishness for the participants by showing the area not to be a muddy multiculturalism, but an area of richness in cultural difference to be embraced. The work, a 30, 13, 13 by seven foot, um, what's this word? Kibachrome, um, print, uh, was displayed in the Tate Britain for all to see before being bought and transferred to the town hall from which the participating children were from, which was the Isle of Dogs. It is the end product of a process which raised the awareness of cultural integration in society among the participants because of the dialogical, uh, because of the discussion that all of the students had when they were looking at the older painting and the question was put to them, how has this changed? And they all probably spoke about it and they probably learned a lot about um, through that discussion with the artists. The discussion was probably led by the artists, maybe. And so they came to a new understanding as a, as a result of that discussion. And then as a result of the discussion, they they made suggestions for new imagery in the remake in the remake of that picture. So pretty cool project. Um, the effects of such works are undoubtedly ones of good democratic intent but the dichotomy is are these good social aesthetics as opposed to good artistic aesthetics dichotomy means something of like two natures um a split kind of the effect of such works are undoubtedly ones of good democratic intent but the, the dichotomy is are these good social aesthetics as opposed to good artistic aesthetics To understand how this problem might be resolved, a consideration of the following might provide an emulsifier, which is like a mixing together, (laughs) um, for the dichotomy at hand. Kester argues, quote, beauty has a social aura. It may be culturally specific or ideologically conditioned, but also is socially mediated. It is confirmed by consensus. In these terms, then, beauty is a fusion of good social and artistic aesthetics. So, yeah, he's saying it is actually... Mm, beauty is both of those things, social aesthetics and artistic aesthetics. An example where individuals subjectively agree on a matter through consensus to create a new objective reality may provide an answer. If we think, oh yeah, I was actually talking with a friend recently about uh, cultural relativity (laughs) of, um, let's say, different customs. Uh, Maybe I'll explain it in a minute, but uh, here's an example that I put in this when I was like 21. If we think of the swastika when considered in its original hindu context it can be understood as being beautiful i'm not, i can't remember now exactly what the original swastika meant in that context but it was something completely different from how it was 
later used by the Nazis. However, in the appropriated context referring to Nazism, unless one is sympathetic to fascism, one would not call it beautiful. There are many examples we can think of as being ideologically agreeable to us. <laughs> However, the point here is not that the social significance of image, sorry, um, there are many examples we can think of as being ideologically agreeable to us. However, the point here is that the social significance of the image, sign or action crucially affects the designation of beauty. This is applicable not just to images or objects, but also morals, beliefs, and general consensus. Um, Kester argues that there is an urgent need for the development of new terminology in order to discuss and analyze socially engaged practices. This task, he states, is not aided by current opposition between non-believers of these types of practices. The antagonism, as Kester sees it, that... The antagonism, as Kester sees it, is that aesthetes reject this type of work as marginalized, whereas believers, mainly activists, who reject all aesthetic questions as they regard them as maintaining the market, the market and cultural hierarchy, questions as they regard them as maintaining the market and cultural hierarchy, if the aesthetes risk condemning art to a world of market-driven sculpture and painting, the latter alienate themselves from such a world to the point of artistic and political disempowerment. Thus, Kester's appeal for qualification rests on the account of this dichotomy. Ultimately, both parties, believers and non-believers, are for change and emancipation, as implied by the notion of art. Therefore, why should this antagonism exist? Could one not corroborate the other? Both parties, both parties' ameliorative attempts should not be competing, for are they not on the same team? Yeah, this is just what I was saying. It's kind of like... There's no need to diss it. I'm not. There's no need to diss it. It's like it's doing something very good, and it's using art as a as a as a as a way of um, making this development in the particular group that is involved. And then that group also does produce a work of art that reflects the development. So, yeah, I, I think it is it is art. Um. I mean, I'm just thinking here now, like, okay, like, conceptual art was the shift from, um, what's the phrase, um, kind of like optical, there's maybe a phrase that I'm missing here, but it was Marcel Duchamp, uh, a French painter, um, who basically kind of invented uh, conceptual art, because he was thinking that every single painting is made up of just lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of individual decisions. In individual decisions made about what paint to mix and where to put it and how to put it in what, kind of, in what kind of way. So he boiled it down to like art is essentially about decision making. So then he had the idea of um, like a decision is like an idea. So then he he kind of went into conceptual art just working with the fact that you know like each brush stroke was a decision uh, or an idea then ideas themselves became the artwork um 
why am I getting onto this? I think I'm just talking about this is kind of how art has breakthroughs and how it develops. So obviously with these dialogical art practices, there has been another breakthrough um, from the, let's say, from the optical way of looking at art to the conceptual um, and then you could say to the relational in relational aesthetics and then you could say to the dialogical here with these kind of art um, works so yeah um, where am I oh yeah I finished that paragraph these experimental artworks place an emphasis on providing motivational and practical tools for the participants to use in order to become active producers in the future rather than remain passive consumers. You see, this is like um, what I was talking about in the intro. It's like society kind of cultivates passivity in people through being apathetic, um, through just, you know, entertainment and being more so concerned with clothes and image and all that kind of stuff rather than maybe more important things. Um, so these artworks actually help people to like uh, maybe tune into certain important issues and they help them to articulate, to learn how to kind of, um, yeah, develop their ability to articulate. And it's that kind of ability to articulate yourself, which is very empowering. So yeah, the artworks do that. Um, yeah. That was a, a, an issue that I brought up in the first chapter that was is like, um, yeah, it's something, um, as, I'm, as I was saying, like, you know, <laughs> these elites, they don't want people thinking for themselves. Um, if people were thinking for themselves, they are much more difficult to manipulate. So, yeah, so it, these artworks are dealing with that um with that issue of people being manipulated and they're empowering people to become articulate for themselves. So yeah, pretty cool uh, emancipatory uh, action going on there in these artworks. These practices are usually conceived by artists who have come together to form a collective or group where discussion is part of the preparation as it is part of the actual work, as opposed to a singular point of orientation. Conception of the work involves dialogue resulting in a plan of action based on a consensus met within the group. An example of such a collective is Oda Progessi. Uh, this group used their own home as the site for collaborative actions. They promote creativity in workshops as they want to produce a more creative and participatory social fabric by being me mediators between groups of people who normally don't interact. Oh yeah, I remember this project. This group does not dwell on the dilemma of their work being without any notion of aesthetics. They believe that dynamic and sustained relationships provide their markers of success. Yeah, they're really just about change and they, they are artists. And this is, um, as, a, as, this, as it said here, they get different groups who normally don't talk at all. They kind of set up situations where they set up, they set up situations for kind of like interventionist artistic reasons that only an artist would set up. And then because of this um, strange, normally not occurring discussion between these types of people. But now this discussion is happening because it was artists who set it up. 
um, and then the the discussion that is had is completely <laughs> only as a result of these artists' ideas, um, and so then the results of that discussion seemingly are usually very beneficial, and they make a change somehow. And so those are the markers of success for those artists. So that's pretty cool. There's a quote here. The creative energy of participatory practices rehumanizes or at least uh, de-alienate a society rendered numb and fragmented by the repressive instrumentality of capitalist production. There it is again, that word instrumentality of capitalist production Like people who may normally feel they have no business to talk with this group of people, but in actual fact, if they did, maybe there would be a lot of a lot of good might come out of it. But because they're so rationally minded, and it's all time is money, as Max Weber was saying in the earlier chapter, they would never think to allow themselves to do that, perhaps. But artists being kind of like, um, yeah, essentially, I think I say it in the conclusion or something here. By, by being kind of outside of whatever the dominant or whatever the kind of um, mainstream movement of society is, by being detached from that and slightly outside of it, you know, they're, you're in a position of uh, not being caught up in the sway of that and you might see things a bit more, less biasedly to a certain extent. Anyway, I'll go on. Lorraine Leeson and her partner Peter Dunn, as mentioned previously, work under the name of The Art of Change. In their practice, they attempt to learn as much as possible about the cultural and political histories of the people with whom they work, as well as their particular needs and skills. A large part of their artistic identity is based upon their capacity to listen openly and actively and to engage scenarios which will be most sympathetic to the participants in order to maximize the collective potential. Their technique is much like that of educator and theorist Paolo Freire's conscientization. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew this book was in my thesis, but here we are now. We've gotten to it. This guy is amazing. Freire's technique, he's a, he's a Brazilian pedagogue, meaning he, like uh, a teacher. Um, he studies how to teach, and he's a teacher himself. Freire's technique, as described in his book Pedagogy of the Oppressed, deals with oppression. He believes to overcome oppression, the oppressed must first emancipate their oppressors. Otherwise, the oppressed become the oppressors in their quest for emancipation. I mean, that is just brilliant. Um... Conscientization refers to learning to perceive social, political and economic contradictions. Freire's technique involves listening and speaking to people to find out what exactly the roots of their problems are and then provide them with the tools for the oppressed to emancipate themselves. Thus, the oppressed become self-sufficient as opposed to being handed an answer which may only temporarily resolve a problem. Another example of such dialogical practices is by a group based in Vienna called Wuckenklauser, which roughly translates to English, which roughly translated to English could signify closing weeks. 
apparently. The project was initiated in 1994. It consisted of a series of conversations between a variety of participants ranging, fr ranging from different positions in society. Some were politicians, journalists, sex workers and activists, but all from the city of Zurich. Um, these conversations or dialogues were held on a boat which travelled around a lake whilst the participants engaged in dialogue with one another. In image number three here, the dialogues were conceived by the collective Wokenklauser um, as a means of intervention into the drug policies of the area, which were in ineffective and insufficient. The conversation which took place on these consecutive boat discussions that the collective initiated were to deal with the difficult situation that drug users and prostitutes had found themselves in. They had been stigmatized by society and as a result were unable to obtain housing in the district. The success of this project was due to how the collective Wokenklauser orchestrated the dialogues. The context that the dialogue that the dialogues took place in was manipulated intentionally by the artists involved. Maybe manipulated is kind of the wrong word. Maybe it was like uh, the context that the dialogues took place in was um, like intelligently, <laughs> uh, sensitively, appropriately, um, designed by the artists involved yeah because manipulation has a bit of a negative connotation the participants whilst on the boat were insulated from direct media scrutiny and thus were able to communicate with one another outside of the normal modes of rhetoric utilized in their otherwise official bureaucratic roles in society and so the people involved in this were where is it um So it was um, politicians, journalists, sex workers, activists, and maybe people who are um, maybe like heroin addicts or something like this, all different kind of people involved in the problem from different sides, like politicians and journalists. Um, so, and because they were in this strange context, there wasn't like cameras on them, there wasn't... Um, There wasn't the usual media pressure on them. They were taken outside of their norm, the normal way that they talk. And so that different situation that they're in allowed a different discussion to happen. And that different discussion seemingly brought new thoughts to the table. And maybe it maybe resulted in a more empathic um, experience for maybe the politicians to view these problems directly um, because of this uh, artistic um, situation that was created by the artists. This context facilitated the means by which a more open altruistic dialogue could occur. Yeah, like I just said, the artists framed the talks within a bureaucratic, free, ide ideologically autonomous zone. The negotiations established a modest but concrete outcome. The consensus initiated actions which set up a boarding house pension scheme for those affected so that they had a place to sleep and access, <clears throat> and access to general services. 
nice. So there was a kind of a housing scheme made up as a result of this um, as a result of this artwork. Very cool. I mean, I don't mean to disrespect, let's say, activists or something, but it's an artist's sensitivity to context. Um, for example, that enabled this artwork to come about. And all I'm saying is, like, sure, activists do brilliant things all the time, necessary things. But this particular type of activism was very artistically done. Um, so it was also a very effective in its own way. Um, ooh, uh, <laughs> I'll just reread the sentence where I stopped. The consensus initiated actions which set up a boarding house pension scheme for those affected so that they had a place to sleep and access to general services. So yeah, I'm not putting one over the other. I'm just saying um, it was a different method. Um, eight years later, it continues to house 20 women a day. This It's still open, um, this housing scheme. So and then there's pictures three and four. Um, show it. Maybe I'll put these online or something. Um, Claire Bishop acknowledges that in this type of work, the identification of empathy is necessary. Once this is achieved, then a reciprocal exchange of information can take place and allow the participants to think outside their own lived experience and provide a more compassionate sense of self. She believes this model of collaboration is harmonious to Kester's ideal form of engagement. And then, quote, conversation in which all participants are open to a temporary confusion of boundary, boundaries between self and other, a blurring achieved through the act of dialogue itself. That was from Grant Kester. A uh, book called Conversation Pieces, which luckily for me is one of the books that I did manage to find <laughs> the last time I went over to get books. Um, it is this blurring which restores humility in the participants. Which temporarily, at least, dissipates bureaucracy. Yeah. From the example described above, we see how the bureaucratic rules which are the foundation of capitalist societies, are often incapable of dealing with the problems that society creates for itself, such as the ones mentioned above. Such as the ones mentioned above. Groups like The Art of Change, Wuckenklauser and Oda Progessi are just a few examples among many of collectives that utilize dialogical art forms. One objective of these collectives is to pro provide an, an ameliorative agent for society where it is lacking in facilities for dealing with such social problems that this is this is a sentence the next sentence i think i was trying to explain it a while ago the artistic agency by remaining free from the conventions and prevailing ideologies in society provides a flexible methodology for problem solving um Yeah. So now I'm on to the conclusion. So I think I'm just about there. Yeah, I'm just about there. So I'm not sure how long this was, but it's fine. Uh, right. So the conclusion. In chapter one of this thesis, Guy Debord's 
analysis of consumer societies was used to elucidate the distorted realities that is the distorted reality that is predominant in our society today. This model of life is dehumanizing. Instrumental rationality is alienating individuals from genuine human interactions without them realizing it. This rationality is the glue of a fragmented society. The fetishization of commodities and positions of power in bureaucratic societies has led people to become estranged from their own humility, which ossifies the alien alienation from oneself and others. Chapter 2 discussed the reactions within the art world in light of these problems. Important examples of political proclivities in art throughout history were provided <laughs> to trace a logical line of thought to provide a clearer understanding of present-day activities. I now believe all art is inherently political, just as political as the everyday activities of everybody. Each individual's everyday position and situation reflects the political system they live in, whether one realizes it or not. Politics only subside when they become so complex that they appear to be invisible. I think this is the last paragraph then. How did this system which we must endure come about? Uh, the attempts of dialogical art forms. Uh, that's a real prompt. <laughs> that's like a real prompt for myself. How did this system which we must endure come about? I mean, I'm talking about the capitalistic system. So, um yeah, I'm prompting myself there to uh, to do another big bit of research if I want to know more about how this came about. Um, it, it was the Dutch who who invented capitalism. I'm pretty sure. Um, anyway, the the attempts of dialogical art forms to tackle problems inherent in capitalist societies, in capitalist consumer societies are models for the means of emancipating consciousness in societies. The attempts of dialogical art forms to tackle problems inherent in capitalist consumer societies are models for the means of emancipating consciousness in societies. Hey, here's a sentence. I anticipate shifts in consciousness where people will realize that the man-made arbitrary concept of friends, <laughs> for example, will no longer exist. What the tag for are we not all brothers and sisters like in the most fundamental institution of the family friend has an opposite called foe but brother only has his sibling we are all equal but the free market model of society has deluded this fact some believe they are superior to others based on their advancement in a dehumanizing society this delusion ossifies inequality in society. A resurgence of empathy and altruism is in order to restore humility in the Western world. I'll just get back to that sentence there. I knew that sentence was in this and I was thinking today, I was like, th that sentence there about like, um, I anticipate shifts in consciousness, seeing as artists are all about the liberation of consciousness through different artistic practices, I anticipate shifts in consciousness where people will realize that the man-made arbitrary concept of friends, mm, some of these things I would word differently now for sure, will no longer exist. I mean, that's some super kind of like 21-year-old uh, <laughs> uh, idealistic uh, stuff going on. 
it's like um, a book I came across some years after I read this or I wrote this um, is called Vril. Oh, what is the subtitle? Vril, it's like Vril, V-R-I-L, the, the coming future race or something like this. And it was, what's the guy who wrote it? Um, the guy who wrote it actually is the person who invented the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, is there another phrase he invented? Bulwer-Lytton. Something Bulwer-Lytton. Um, can't remember his first name now, but it's Bulwer-Lytton. Um, you can give it a brave as opposed to a Google if you're curious to know more. But anyway, yeah, he wrote this novel and it's like, um, coincidentally, again, just in the other, I think in the first two episodes of this episode, first two sections, parts of this episode, I mentioned um, I mentioned Nietzsche and his concept of the Superman as he um, put forward in his book, um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um like he was imagining how humans are going to evolve. Like what, in what way are we going to evolve? Like apparently we came from little tiny, you know, little, just a few cells, big kind of organisms developed into fish and came out of the water, became like reptiles and then like monkeys and then us apparently. So who's, you know, why, why would we assume that we're, we've stopped that evolution? So um, his, his, book though is much more about um like how the human will be as opposed to him physically changing um um oh yeah so i'm just saying that because when i'm when i was thinking about this sentence today before i read this i didn't read this but i knew this sentence was in it um i mean i guess i was thinking about something similar it's kind of like um I guess I was thinking of like a way ahead in the future when like maybe humanity has reached a completely like much more spiritually advanced uh, kind of a state where who knows, maybe we have eradicated violence. We have eradicated enemies. We're all as, as like, you know, mystics and people like that say that like we are all one and ego is the illusion of separation, you know, if society got to these kind of states, you know, there might not be things like uh, f friends because everyone is a, is a family almost. That's even better. You know what I mean? Anyway, I'm just making this comment to kind of explain somewhat the kind of real ide idealistic thinking that <laughs> 21 year old version of me had uh, to write that sentence. And I'm just reminded of that book, Vril, by that guy, George Bulwer-Lytton or something Bulwer-Lytton. Um, because that book, it's like, um, a guy goes up somewhere in, I think Scandinavia and he goes underground and he finds this race that's actually living in like underground and they're just, they're a real advanced kind of humanoid looking, uh, beings. And I think they ha they're like telepathic and they can like fly and they're just like really advanced, but they look quite like humans. Um, so yeah, uh, I just thought of I just thought of that today. It's something to look up if you're curious. Um, Vril, I forget what the subtitle is, like the coming race or something like this. 
and once again that guy Bulwer Lytton yeah he the pen is mightier than the sword I'm pretty sure he invented that or he coined that phrase maybe there's another one another phrase but it doesn't come to mind now that that is famous that we all say and it was him who wrote it as well um so yeah okay I've, I've explained my 21 year old idealism but um yeah it's still relevant it's um we are evolving as Nietzsche was saying, it's it's really good fortune that I reread the first <laughs> the first uh, chapter of Thus Spoke Zarathustra like the night before I started recording these parts for this episode because it's totally relevant. Like, if we are not developing, we are kind of like what Nietzsche was saying. Um, we are the ultimate man, which is a person who does no, who no longer has an interest in improving himself. He just he just like does not evolve. He just stays the same. I mean, that's it, it's, it's like humans have lost the movement in them. And as I, as I was saying from my rereading of the of the lecture by Thomas Carlyle on Scandinavian mythology, Odin was an early artist or articulator who was moving society along by his articulations because it, it, it improves understanding, so further understanding can happen. Um, um, yeah, so I think I've explained that enough there now. My 21-year-old idealism, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's still relevant. <laughs> uh, all right, so there's like literally a few sentences left now, and then it's done. So... I'll just reread that again. I anticipate shifts in consciousness where people will realize that the man-made arbitrary concept of friends, for example, will no longer exist. Mm, for are we not all brothers and sisters like in the most fundamental institution of the family? Friend has an opposite called foe, but brother only has his sibling. We are all equal, but the free market model of, model of society has diluted this fact. Some believe they are superior to others based on their advancement in a dehumanizing society. And they probably trampled on a lot of people to get there, you know, so. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was imagining, you know, a society where people don't trample on each other. They respect other people. And uh, yeah, like I'm saying a lot recently, maybe this imagined future society is has achieved a republic of conscience. That's a big, that's a thing I, I'm saying a lot recently. Um, in my posts on Instagram and stuff, if you're there, you'll see <laughs> what I'm talking about. Uh, and yeah, I've been speaking about it in a few of the last episodes, uh, recent episodes. Um this delusion um, ossifies inequality in society. A resurgence of empathy and altruism is in order to restore humility in the Western world. Dialogical art practices are one model of striving for change as they utilize empathy and altruism as an effective tool for social amelioration, like improvement. The aim of dialogical art practices is to empower participants so that they realize their ability to improve their own situation. By activating an individual's sense of social responsibility and engagement, the individual is emancipated from the passivity which society subjects the masses to. The end. 
So yeah, I think it's a nice full circle there at the end from the title. The title once again being A Dialogical Model for Raising Awareness of Social Responsibility. So there you are. Let me just have a quick look at how long that was. Yeah, nice. It's roughly about the same again. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty happy I reread that. I think, yeah, some little parts of it I might, I would... I mean, we had a word limit, I think, on this thing. So some things I would maybe, maybe I was a little bit naive about certain things in it. But in general, the whole thing, I think it is worth the listen. Um, I think it might have been interesting about how certain artistic practices came about, the kind of ph philosophical background that influenced the changes and the shifts in different art movements and stuff. So, um, so yeah, that was it. Um What shall I say? Yeah, hope it was interesting. Uh, as always, I didn't say it in the last two parts of this, but um, yeah, so if you're enjoying these, um, as I hear lots of podcasters say, it's like, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, if like you met me in a bar and you had been listening to some of the podcasts and you actually enjoyed them or you got something useful or from them or whatever, or you thought it was worth your time and you're glad you listened to them. If we, if you, if you met me in a bar <laughs> and you're like, Oh, that's you, the guy who does those things. I was listening to those. Um, it's like, would you buy me a drink? <laughs> Just like one drink as, as like a thanks. Uh, and if you would, that's, that's kind of what the Patreon, uh, account is there for because, yeah, uh, I mean, like, I enjoy doing this. Um, what can I say? Um, yeah, it would be it would be really nice uh, as a show of like appreciation that people actually like th these. You know, if people say to me they like it, that's already brilliant and amazing. Um, but it's it's also the case that. You know, if this did get financial support, that I could do a lot more. Like I, I could do a lot more. Um, and as I've said many times, like I studied art, so I'm trying to um, go that direction in my life. I'm working on different projects currently. Um, so trying to make that a reality. So yeah, if you um, enjoyed this or any other episode and if you are in a position where, you know, like a comfortable position where you could afford, you know, the price of a coffee or a drink once a month or even just one time, you know, that would even just still be great. Um, that would be really appreciated. So, yeah, it's just Oral Otium on Patreon. Um, yeah, you can check it out. Also, however you found this podcast, if you want to follow on Instagram, say hi, leave any feedback or comments. I'd love to hear it. Um the following on Instagram is growing slowly. Um, it's kind of nice. Um, I switched the account from a private one um, in August to a public one, and there's been a lot more uh, followers since then. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so good having it closed. But um, um, yeah, so hope that was interesting. Um, I thought it would be good to reread and to share it. Uh, I wrote it. So as I said, it's kind of like a podcast episode. Um, it's very similar to a podcast. You do a lot of research, you find a way to present it all, then you, you know, then you present it in a, in an audio, 
Whereas with the thesis, it was the same thing. You do a lot of research, find a particular question you want to pursue or an angle on it all, and then you write it as opposed to uh, speak about it. So yeah, I uh, hope it was interesting. I think I can sign off now. And um, yeah, would would love to hear any feedback on uh, Instagram. That would be cool. Say hi. Okay, so I'll leave it at that. So hope that was interesting. And until next time, uh, take care.